This is episode number 647 with Tom Davenport, many-time best-selling author and professor of IT and management at Babson College. Today's episode is brought to you by Colina, the testing platform for machine learning. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, I am feeling unbelievably lucky to be joined by the iconic Professor Tom Davenport. Tom has published over 20 books, such as the best-selling Competing on Analytics, The AI Advantage, and Analytics at Work. He's penned over 300 articles and publications like the Harvard Business Review and writes regular columns for Forbes and the Wall Street Journal. He's the President's Distinguished Professor of IT and Management at Babson College. He's Visiting Professor at the Said Business School at the University of Oxford. He's Senior Advisor to the AI Practice for the global professional services giant Deloitte. And with nearly 300,000 followers, he's recognized as a LinkedIn top voice. Today's episode is equally well-suited to technical and non-technical listeners alike. Every part of today's episode should be appealing to anyone who's keen to hear about the leading edge of commercial applications of AI. In this episode, Professor Davenport details the discrete AI maturity levels of organizations, how organizations become AI-fueled, which jobs are susceptible to replacement by AI, which jobs are ripe for augmenting with AI, what roles other than data scientists are required to deploy effective machine learning models, what the future of data science will look like, and having coined data science as the sexiest job of the 21st century a decade ago, whether he still thinks it is today. All right, you ready for this terrific episode? Let's go. Wow, Tom Davenport, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. I know tons of our audience members are delighted to have you here. We had a huge amount of engagement on my social posts uh, indicating that you'd be coming on the show. We've got great questions from guests coming up near the end of the episode. Anyway, welcome to the show, Tom. Where in the world are you calling in from? Thanks, John. Very happy to be here with you. I am in Santa Barbara, California. Um, uh, I am sort of bicoastal. I just came out here from Boston. So, nice. so you flee Boston in the, the winter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. So, Tom, your Twitter bio says that you are an analytics and AI person, a Red Sox fan, uh, and an academic who gets out into the world as much as possible. And from my perspective, that bio is quite an understatement because you're a sought-after speaker and advisor, a distinguished professor, and last but not least, a prolific author. You've written, co-authored, or edited over 20 books, including many bestsellers, and we've got a link in the show notes to all of your books. Uh, the latest blockbuster is called All In on AI. Can you explain to us what this new book is about? Sure, happy to. So this, um, for me, at least, I co-authored it with the head of AI at Deloitte. It's, he'd probably have a different answer. But for me, it's sort of uh, an AI-centric version of a previous topic I had written on called 
competing on analytics. Mm-hmm. So this is about companies that compete on their AI capabilities. Um, if they're sort of legacy companies, so to speak, not digital natives who've decided AI is really important to their future success. And so they devote a lot of energy and money and um, resources to um, using AI to transform their businesses. They're sort of the most aggressive adopters of AI in their in their industries generally, and they use it to do something new, not just kind of refine their existing strategy or business model or way related to customers. They they try to do something transformative with it. Nice. Um, so uh, one of the things that uh, you talk about a lot in that book is that there are challenges with the human side of AI. So what are those challenges? Why are, why are those um, kind of uh, preventing organizations from being able to adopt AI or do new things like AI, like you just described? Sure. Yeah, well, I'm always interested in those because I'm a sociologist by academic background, not a computer scientist or, or God forbid, a data scientist <laughs> that didn't exist when I was in graduate school. But um, I am sort of always interested in how um, organizationally and in terms of, you know, human behavior and culture and so on do companies get this kind of thing going on. And usually I, I, it's kind of a cliche or kind of cliche. I hate to say this, but it has a lot to do with CEOs in many cases. And they sort of get passionate about how AI can have an impact on their business and they make everybody else um, uh, go along with that. Um, So um, that particular type of human is really quite important. And then also I'm really interested in the humans who are doing the work with AI um, on a you know, day-to-day basis, and Mm -hmm. most companies don't really involve them enough in thinking about um, how their work is going to change and what skills they're going to need and so on. So, um, uh, and particularly, you know, the thing about AI is it tends to support knowledge work. Previous technologies we had were more administrative-oriented. And so, you know, I've recently written another book about healthcare. I'm really interested in AI and healthcare. And I've observed some settings in which AI, particularly in radiology now, is being rolled out to Mm -hmm. um, identify potentially cancerous lesions and radiology images and so on. And a lot of doctors um, who have that capability just blow it off if it disagrees with their interpretation. because. Um, they don't understand the algorithms. Nobody understands the algorithms. They're all these deep learning models that nobody can really interpret. Mm-hmm. So um, they they just distrust it and don't end up, you know, changing their their diagnosis as a result. And I think it really requires a lot of um, effort and more technological sophistication than we have today to get this kind of collaboration between somebody like a, a well-educated doctor and an AI system. So I think there there are a lot of things that we have to work out if we were going to be successful with AI a, at a large scale. 
Yeah. Do you think that part of that in healthcare is related to people feeling like they don't want to give up the importance of their own cognition? Like, I think we, especially when you're in a role like that, that is so prestigious, you're a radiologist, you've worked very hard to get into that position. And so it's kind of your identity to believe that what you think is important. And if a machine comes along, uh, and maybe you're a radiologist that's been working for decades, and you had never had computer recommendations of diagnoses before, and now computers are coming along, they're black boxes that, as you say, we can't very often get a good uh, interpretation, a good explainability of what's going on inside of a deep learning model. And deep learning is what we use uh, for probably all of these uh, diagnostic imaging cases. Um, yeah, and so it comes along, it outputs something that is different from what the doctor thinks. And so you, I can I can see how, yeah, how that's kind of like intimidating um, for the doctor and they'd want to ignore it. I think that's probably true in a lot of cases. And even among the most, um, you know, <laughs> intellectually secure, I guess, of doctors or lawyers or, you know, whatever the highly educated professional might be, if a system is kind of overruling, overriding your perception of the situation, um, how do you know whether you should give it up or not? Um, I mean, maybe someday AI systems will be so much better than human cognition that they, you know, we would not dare to question them. But I think now most of the research studies on, for example, radiology imaging with AI suggests that it's, you know, it's about as good or maybe a little better than the average human and human radiologist. So um, why wouldn't you question it or override it if you, particularly if you can't understand what's going on? So, um, you know, it's, it's going to be challenging, I think, until if and when AI becomes so incredibly superior to us humans <laughs> that, that we will bow down and, and yeah referred to its proclamations. Yeah, and I'm, I'm certainly not uh, an expert in this uh, radiological uh, machine vision space, but my understanding is that these the machines are very good at commonplace situations. So where we have a lot of training data, historically, sort of common uh, tumor types in common tissues, um, the machine vision algorithms are going to be better, uh, but then the radiologist will be better uh, for handling handling edge cases um, than probably the machines. Is that kind of roughly what you've heard as well? That certainly makes sense. Um, you know, I I'm not an expert at it either, but you know, I know uh, I had a relative recently who came down with a rare form of cancer, and um, we were told uh, um, that there weren't. Uh, drugs designed for this cancer because it's rare. There weren't um, uh, immunotherapies. There weren't uh, uh, a lot of treatment approaches. And I'm guessing that also means there's not a lot of training data for those kinds of things. Um, mm -hmm. But um, I haven't seen that in any literature, but it certainly makes sense. Yeah, it's a big limitation for today's deep learning architectures where without a very large number of uh, positive and negative cases, 
the algorithms can't like a physician would be able to, a physician might be able to uh, have encountered this rare disorder just once a decade ago, but they took great notes, they looked into it in detail, and they can recall that or they can dig back into the literature um, and make decisions in a situation where the the deep learning algorithm is helpless. Hopefully there's, uh, I, I don't know exactly how these uh, medical tools work, but hopefully they have some kind of confidence score <laughs> associated with them so that uh, it's not just some binary classifier where if the, uh, if the output is above 0.5, it's like, oh, there's a tumor and below 0.5, it's up, oh, there's not. I, hopefully there's some kind of, I'm not really sure in this situation. This isn't something I've seen much before. Yeah, I think that was going to be the case with the um, ill-fated IBM Watson healthcare um, uh, solution. Um, I don't know if that's true in the deep learning, you know, um, image recognition models or not. I haven't haven't seen any that close up. Yeah, no, I haven't worked with them either. Uh, they certainly could. They could have that kind of uh, information brought up to the physician to say, you know, this is a situation where I'm very confident. Are you unit testing your machine learning models? You certainly should be. If you're not, you should check out Colina. Colina is an ML testing platform for your computer vision models. It's the only tool that allows you to run unit and regression tests at the subclass level on your model after every single model update, allowing you to understand the failure modes of your model much faster. And that's not all. Kalina also automates and standardizes your model's testing workflows, saving over 40% of your team's valuable time. Head over to Kalina's website now to learn more. It's www.kalina.io. That's K-O-L-E-N-A dot I-O. Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. we're getting deep into this. Have you, um, have you come across from a couple of years ago, there was a study that showed there was this... Um, cognitive bias it had a name it's not coming to me off the top of my head uh, but it seems to me like you might be the kind of person that remembers it uh anyway I, I can describe the effect which is that uh humans are much more skeptical of a machine after it's made just one error whereas humans are much more forgiving of humans making the same errors um so they i can't remember who did the study or what they named the effect but there's this cognitive bias where um the same mistakes if it's presented to you by a physician, or let's say uh, you're a radiologist and there's a radiologist colleague of yours, they make a mistake every once in a while. You think, ah, you know, everybody makes mistakes. It's no big deal. Um, but then when a machine does it, you're like, ah, I knew it. Can't trust this machine. I'm done with this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it's called either. And we shouldn't feel bad about that because if you look in Wikipedia under cognitive biases, there's like a biases, <laughs> there are like 180 of them. So remembering them all is really quite difficult. But um I think that um that inability to forgive machine error is a big issue for us in terms of, for example, the the um, acceptance of autonomous vehicles. Um, you know, we know humans crash, we humans crash into each other all the time, mm -hmm. but, um, in autonomous vehicles, I mean, there are a lot of issues around them, but, um, uh, if one person gets hit by, a um, a car in Phoenix and gets killed it, everybody says, forget it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, right. 
drive the ride around in those things or even walk around with those things around. So, right. um, and we don't seem to have any sense of relative probabilities of human error versus machine error. So it's a, it's, I right. think it's a problem for the commercial acceptance of a lot of AI. For sure. Uh, autonomous vehicles could be 10 times safer, uh, you know, per mile driven, it could be a 10th of, you know, the human, uh, fatalities cause rate or accidents caused rate. And yeah, because it makes headlines, uh, it could still lead to legislators saying, nope, no autonomous vehicles. Yeah, it is, it is certainly a problem. Yeah. And, you know, I think also what we don't realize is that, um, the capabilities of autonomous vehicles and of AI in general are very situational. Um, as, as you were suggesting before about, you know, rare cancers, if it's a rare event, you know, uh, black ice on the road, for example, which those of us who um, live in the Northeast have encountered um, now and then, mm -hmm. um, there are going to be very few um, uh, images that you can train your autonomous vehicle on. And even if you, they can't even be seen by a human anyway, much of the time, that's what's called black ice. So um, I think the, the it's all going to be very granular when autonomous vehicles work out. And when they don't, that, that's why they're in geofenced areas within Phoenix, for example, where you don't have much black ice. <laughs> and um, I think humans may have a hard time with that as well, knowing, you know, what the circumstances are when you should trust them and, and when you shouldn't. Yeah. 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 I think, uh, in addition to the black ice thing, a big problem for autonomous vehicles has been like glare. Um, so I know there was like a famous case of like, I think it was a Tesla where there was like yeah, a decapitation. That, yeah. The glare off that white truck or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was mistaken for the sky, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, changing a few pixels you know maybe there's dirt on the camera or something that could be a right. factor and uh, you see that in um, radiology as well because you know different machines um, have different resolution levels and um, are more effective than others uh, in their lenses and so on and they may not be the ones that the algorithm was trained upon Right. Yeah, that could be a big issue. I could see that for sure. Um, all right. So uh, we've talked about in your book, in <laughs> in your book, all in on AI, about how, uh, you know, some of these challenges present uh, from the human side where, uh, you know, CEOs could be the problem, or uh, <laughs> people who are uh, un unopen to change could be part of the problem. Um, so let's kind of flip that around to the positive. What can an organization be doing to become AI fueled and see the kind of success that these AI early adopters that you chronicle in the book um, have enjoyed? Yeah, well, it's you know it's some degree of of um, vision, uh, a, an ability to connect what AI can do with the um, kind of um, business problems that the organization is facing. It, it means that typically these senior decision makers are going to need to know a fair amount about AI and how it might progress. And in the book, um, I talk about one company 
Um, most of the companies are really big. This one's sort of middle size. It's, I don't know, 800 million in revenues or so. It's called CCC Intelligent Solutions. It's been around for a while, but CCC used to involve, you know, collateral. It was a company that provided collateral values for cars that got um, crunched in, in crashes. And um, now they do image recognition. And so if you have a car accident, it, you can take a few photos of your car. And with some companies like USAA, you can, assuming that there's no possibility of sort of underlying frame damage, they'll give you an estimate basically within seconds. And for that to happen, the CEO, who's a technically oriented guy, um, Yatesh Ramamurthy is his name, um, had to be aware of the possibility that this image recognition was going to mature, aware that, um, you know, uh, smartphone cameras were going to increase a lot in their ability to take high-quality, high-resolution photos um, and start to develop that capability, you know, long before it was really fully ready. And I think they were working on it for a decade or so uh, before they did a deal with USAA. So, um that takes guts and it takes um, the ability to sort of look into the future and to have some knowledge, uh, some pretty substantial knowledge of the, the um, progression of technological capability. Right. Yeah. So uh, uh, not only an understanding of the potential of AI in general, but also the underlying technologies, consumer technologies, perhaps, or industrial technologies, and where those are going. So you can say, in about five years, consumer phones will have cameras that are good enough that we could have this capability. We need to start going on the infrastructure and the uh, the legal frameworks internally to be able to handle uh processing images and making decisions automatically in about five years. Yeah. And this same company, by the way, is, um, I think by the time autonomous vehicles come out, they'll be ready with some ability to um, help insurance companies decide, you know, which vehicle was at fault and vehicles are throwing off massive amounts of data even now. And mm -hmm. so they can, um, uh, start to gather and model that data in order to help make decisions about it. Mm. And you just uh, gave me a light bulb around how we could end up going in the direction of autonomous vehicles in the future, regardless what your average person thinks, which is, yeah, you're not in your head. You've already, you already know, you already thought of this, which is that insurance companies could just say your premiums will be a tenth of what they would otherwise be if you just let your machine drive all the time as opposed to yourself. You'll have to pay 10 times as much every month if you want to handle the steering wheel. Well, that would make sense. And, you know, it would be relatively easy for them to do because a lot of these companies, you know, starting with Progressive, who we talk about in the book, um, are doing continuous monitoring of human driving anyway, you know, maybe they would say, you're not a very safe driver. You should turn over more to, uh, to the machine, to the autonomous vehicle. Um, on the other hand, this other person, you're a very safe driver. We're not going to give you as much of a discount um, if you if you make that conversion. So uh, it, again, it could be a more granular calculation than saying everybody 
will reward everybody for moving to to this technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, cool. All right. So that kind of covers what you've got in your latest uh, bestseller in All In on AI. Um, another theme in your writing about AI from other books, as well as the, the various other publications that you write, um, is that you advocate for putting humans in the loop. So in other words, you believe that AI can augment human capabilities more effectively than replacing humans altogether. So would you mind elaborating for our listeners on this viewpoint? Sure. Yeah, I actually wrote, I've written two books on this and I was a sort of a convert. Um, uh, I um, started out with the idea that I would write a book about how AI was going to take away our jobs. And I even had a title in mind of No Humans Need Apply. And mm-hmm. then um, partially it was doing the research, partly my co-author, Julia Kirby, of this book convinced me, well, it should really be called Only Humans Need Apply <laughs> because <laughs> um, augmentation, you know, s- smart humans and smart machines working alongside each other is both a far more effective approach and I think at least thus far, a far more likely approach in organizations. And, you know, I talked to a ton of companies about this and not a single one yet has said, yeah, we've laid off a lot of people because of AI. In um, industrial manufacturing, robots, according to some economists, have led to a moderately substantial job losses, about three jobs lost for every robot um, deployed on average. But um, in other other areas of business um, and organization, uh, hardly any job loss at all. And so I, I wrote another book, came out recently, called Working with AI, and it's um, 29 case studies of people who work with AI already on a day-to-day basis. And um, then, you know, a few chapters about the kind of lessons learned from those case studies. And again, nobody seems to be worried. Uh, the people who are doing these jobs aren't worried that they're going to be um, losing their employment anytime soon. And the combination seems to work pretty well. And um, so I am you know, maybe at some point we'll have the singularity occurs that AI is better than us at everything we do. But for, for now, I think we're pretty, pretty safe. Yeah, we have uh, a whole episode dedicated to this topic. So episode number 443 with Jeff Wald. It uh, is actually when I'm talking to somebody at a party and uh, they find out that I have a podcast and they're like, ah, oh, well, I probably couldn't listen to it. I'm like, well, we do have some episodes that, you know, you know, you don't need to be a technical expert to listen to. And I typically point them in the direction of this episode with Jeff Wald, which is all about this conversation. He he blows my mind on air. He turns around. So the same experience that you had while you were writing this book, uh, no, what we were intending on no humans need to apply and then it becomes only humans need to apply the same. I go through uh, that as this episode is being filmed. So I, uh, Jeff does a great job of summarizing statistics from respected organizations like the WHO and uh, academic papers to convince me and hopefully some other listeners that 
uh, by and large, uh, you know, as you say, there are um, some cases where uh, in particular industries, machines do replace, but uh, on a society-wide scale, just like every other uh, industrial revolution beforehand, more jobs are created than are destroyed by these new technologies. Yeah, I mean, there are tons of predictions, which you have probably seen, saying that um, a lot of jobs will be lost. There was this Oxford um, prediction, I think 47% of U.S. jobs are automatable. There was um, a, um, uh, there have been several predictions about how many jobs would be lost and how many would be added. Um, I think you're probably right. Um but we don't really have good data on anything except for all the predictions are wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly the negative ones are wrong, and we don't have a good way to even know how many jobs have been added because of AI. You know, it takes the Bureau of Labor Statistics and all these um, government organizations a long time to sort of figure out there's a new category of job, and Mm -hmm. people are saying now, oh, with with, um, things like, um, chat GPT, generative technologies, prompt engineer is going to be a, a big new job, mm. but it's, it'll probably be five years before the Bureau of Labor Statistics recognizes something called prompt engineer, assuming it does right. really turn out to exist. Yeah. Mathematics forms the core of data science and machine learning. And now with my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course, you can get a firm grasp of that math, particularly the essential linear algebra and calculus. You can get all the lectures for free on my YouTube channel, but if you don't mind paying a typically small amount for the Udemy version, you get everything from YouTube plus fully worked solutions to exercises and an official course completion certificate. As countless guests on the show have emphasized, to be the best data scientist you can be, you've got to know the underlying math. So check out the links to my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course in the show notes or at johncrone.com slash udemy. That's johncrone.com slash u-d-e-m-y. Yeah, so that big paper, that Oxford paper, it seems to be, it's almost always the one that's cited in these are are jobs susceptible uh, to computerization. So that paper is called The Future of Employment. It's by Carl Benedict Frey and Michael Osborne. Uh, and yeah, it's interesting how everyone always comes back to that. Uh, yeah, I'm a visiting professor now at Oxford and I have met with Mm -hmm. Carl and he's sticking to his guns. He might, I I think he probably will admit that it's taking a little longer than he thought. And he sort of, they covered themselves by saying automatable, not -hmm. that they would actually be automated, but, (laughs) um, uh, I, it's definitely, if it's happening, it's happening very slowly. Yeah, I've been trying to get the other author, Michael, on the show because I met him at a wedding before the pandemic. And uh, yeah, through uh, through a friend I who, whom I met at Oxford uh, when I was studying there. Uh, and uh, Michael, very kindly, he wrote a um, in my in my one book that I've written. Um, he he did a uh, what's it called when they write forward. Like uh, forward? no, not the yeah. forward, just oh, like a blurb. positive, like a, a blurb, an endorsement, an endorsement. Yes. Blurbs. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. He very kindly wrote an endorsement. <laughs> um, and yeah, I would love to get him on the show someday. Uh, but yeah, really fascinating work, and it's interesting how that became the like um, <laughs> the gold standard citation for all this work. Even though now it's uh, 
10 years old. It's 2023. Yeah, yeah. And there are predictions of what would happen in 2023, 2022. I think the World Economic Forum, I forget the exact numbers, but said that certain, you know, hundreds of millions of jobs would be lost and somewhat more would be gained by tw- by 2022. And I think now we can officially declare, eh, wrong. <laughs> Neither happened. <laughs> right. Um, something that we touched on in the preceding episode of this show, so episode number 646, uh, with Zach Weinberg, um, we were talking about ChatGPT. We were talking about ways that you can derive commercial value from ChatGPT right away. And you happened to mention that a couple of minutes ago, ChatGPT, and this idea of a prompt engineer. And I want to tie that, ChatGPT, to another word that you said a few minutes before that, which is artificial general intelligence, uh, or um, you know, yeah, an algorithm that would be able to have all of the learning capabilities of a human. And Given your expertise, I think you might have a really interesting idea here. So um, Zach, in that episode, he's a layperson. And so that's why I deliberately brought him on, because I wanted to be showing to listeners, whether they're technical or not, that they can be deriving commercial value right now, uh, you know, generating marketing copy, generating blog posts, uh, generating uh, copy for digital ads, all these kind of, you can do these trivially easily now with ChatGPT. Um, and so Zach was concerned about AGI. And uh, one of the things that we got talking about is how we don't need to have uh, an algorithm that has the same kind of thinking as us, that can learn in the same way as us, for it to be incredibly powerful and incredibly dangerous. And ChatGPT kind of, you know, it it meets those criteria. Right. It, we're um, not. We're not statistical predictors of the next word that needs to come out or the next image or whatever yet um yet it still manages to impress yeah it still manages to impress and so it there are ways that we can learn that it can't um but it's also capable of doing things and the specific example that i that we end up talking about in the show is you can have a script in the style written by Larry David, where Snoop Dogg is a is an actor on the program, and Snoop Dogg raps about um, the global recession or the COVID pandemic or whatever you want, and so that kind of that capacity to be able to imitate the style of a rapper inside a comedy script, like and it does it unbelievably well in a way that very few humans would be able to do, or if a human could do it, it'd be quite laborious. It would take hours of research on, you know, the styles of the rapper and the writer and to figure out how to tie that together into the content and you get results instantaneously. And so even if, you know, even if we never have AGI in our lifetimes, things like ChatGPT coming out a few months ago show that there's going to be incredible generative AI capabilities that far exceed anything that a human can do. And that, uh, you know, OpenAI has done an incredible job of putting guardrails around what ChatGPT outputs. But it's inevitable that in six months, somebody is going to be open sourcing how to be doing the same kind of thing. And then you can get around those guardrails and be generating, uh, you know, propaganda that is you know, uh, targeted at a sociodemographic group, uh, you know, the same way that Zach talking to Zach in the last episode, he can generate marketing copy for his digital ads. 
dictators can be generating propaganda against, uh, you know, minority groups in their country. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, you're talking mostly about text, but obviously um, a lot of potential for image manipulation and deep fakes. And there are already some open source capabilities for that. Um, OpenAI does not allow you to use public figures as right. inputs into your prompt, but other um, companies don't mind, and you already are seeing some of that. And so, um, uh, and sadly, I don't see any sort of regulatory action um, happening quickly in the United States at all, at least. So I think the these capabilities are going to get way ahead of of what we ought to be doing with them. Yeah, and I think, uh, I can't remember if, I ended up discuss, discussing this on air or if it was after we'd stopped recording with Zach for the preceding episode. But my kind of my go to answer, um, my kind of boilerplate answer when people say to me, oh, isn't AI going to cause, you know, terrible damage in the coming decades? You know, these kinds of capabilities are out of control. The point, the boilerplate answer that I come back to is that humans have been creating structures beyond any individual's control for millennia. Governments, armies, armies have done horrible things uh, that, you know, no, nobody wants that outcome from that structure having been created. And hopefully we don't end up having, you know, the same kind of havoc wreaked in the 20th century by armies happen by AI in the 21st century. But hopefully on small, hopefully we, you know, mistakes are inevitable, but hopefully we catch on to those quickly and they don't become pervasive. Yeah. And I think that humans are also very good at knowing what is um, sort of real or human based. I mean, we've all been receiving for decades now um, marketing content that is um, intended to be personalized. And, but I think we can almost always recognize <laughs> that's generated by um, some database marketing engine. And it's not, they don't know me. And despite the fact that they say, you know, dear Tom, and maybe even, you know, recognizing the image on the envelope of a handwritten address, uh, we, we start to be able to figure that out. It takes a while. And I think that will be true with um, things like ch chat GPT and so on. I think um, we'll come to recognize the, you know, re amazingly good, but still relatively low quality of much of the text that it produces. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it'll make us even appreciate more the, the truly human and creative stuff that comes out. Yeah, I think that idea of the when you see uh, fake handwriting on an envelope that comes in, you're like, oh, man, this is going to be salesy for sure. Yeah, uh, you don't even open it anymore. Right? Yeah. yeah, I guess similarly, if you're on a website and you're getting attention right away and somebody's willing to serve you and spend time with you instantly, you'll be like, okay, this is obviously a bot, no matter how good the quality of conversation is. <laughs> yeah, no know. human would ever give me immediate service. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So we talked a bit about the Fran Osborne paper, Tom, 
um, maybe our listeners would be interested in hearing what your thoughts are on what kinds of jobs will be wholly automated uh, with AI in the coming decades and what kinds of workers will be spared? Um, well, you know, AI is really good at tasks, but not entire jobs. So um, when we have a job that consists of only one task, I think that's the the most at risk. So, right. you know, um, I've looked at this for radiology and radiologists. A lot of people think all they do is read um, uh, images but they actually do a variety of other things. And some people have articulated, people who know more about radiology than I do have said, you know, that's one of 13 things that a radiologist might do in a day. So yeah, if that one gets taken over, um, it will mean a change in the job, but it won't mean that it goes away. Um, We've seen it in um, law with this idea of e-discovery, this idea of kind of reading through massive amounts of documents to see did somebody say anything inappropriate in an email or in something relevant to a case in an email and um for a while regular lawyers did that and then it went to lower paid contract document review lawyers and now it's done by machines Mm -hmm. but lawyers are still you know um, around in large numbers maybe numbers that are too large for our, for the health of our society. And for the most part, it, it just, um, they just find other things to specialize in and let the machine do that particular task. So um, it has to be, I think if a machine is going to take over an entire job, it has to be a pretty structured activity that, um, doesn't re- require much variation. And people used to say truck drivers were going to be the first thing that got taken over, but I'm not sure that we still believe that. You know, a lot of the autonomous truck companies have gone out of business now, and who knows mm-hmm. when that when that will be the case. Uh, with these persistent rumors uh, over the past decade of truck drivers being automated in the very near future, there's this enormous shortage of truck drivers in the United States, certainly, because people thought, oh, why would I go into that career? Um, and so now it, it, it's turned out to be something that's quite a lucrative thing to get into because they've had to pay so much to convince people to come into it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and people have said the same thing about radiology, that radiology used to be a really um, sought after job by medical students and some were scared away. We have a big shortage of radiologists, whatever the reason, and um, mm. it's not not going away anytime soon. And in fact, you know, all, with all of this stuff, we as humans, we don't really want human jobs to go away. But on the other hand, we're spending a lot of money on AI and related technologies. And if it's not going to, you know, give us some productivity gains, uh, we're not getting a very good return on our right. investment at all. So um, we need to kind of think about both perspectives. And I do think that um, we, when we can automate a structured task, we ought to try to do it. But we ought to give people some warning and help them try to figure out some other, other things that they might do within our organizations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about getting uh, value, getting a great return on investment uh, from AI. So I gather from what we've just been talking about that uh, if you're a leader in an organization or a data scientist in an organization and you're looking for 
opportunities for something to automate. It sounds clear that something that has a lot of repetition, some task that's highly repetitive, is ideal for automating. What kind of task is ideal for augmenting? I think anything involving um, innovation and adaptation and so on, um, you know, uh, these machine smart machines are very capable, but they're really only good at doing things that have been done a lot before. You know, that's where we get the data to train them. Mm-hmm. And so if the if the environment is changing or has changed and you need to have an entirely new approach, your um, humans are going to help a lot in that regard. And, you know, I think we humans generally, most of us find that more interesting work anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just we can't fall into the trap of doing this job the same way over and over again or, you know, we're likely to be replaced by a machine. Yeah, and that's uh, that kind of idea of being innovative. Um, so if you're in a role that requires some innovation and you're stuck on what to do next, well, now you can open up your chat GPT browser and augment <laughs> with ideas. You can say, you, you can go. describe your situation. Hey, chat GPT, uh, for the last two quarters, um, revenue has been stagnant in my organization. Give me a few ideas of things I could be doing. And then you can narrow down. You can say, okay, that first idea is a pretty good one. Let's make that more specific um, to this particular industry that I'm in or whatever. And it's, uh, it's, as you say, it's not going to be able to come up with the, uh, the complete answer. It's not going to be able to tie everything together, but it can gener- we can augment with this idea generation. I agree. And I think that we, um, we should all lose our jobs if we don't start using tools like ChatGPT to sort of you know, figure out, has somebody already thought of something that we might not have considered? Um, in this, in a related vein, I don't, I haven't seen too much of it yet. Um, I, I recently wrote an article in Harvard Business Review. It was right before ChatGPT came out, which is a little unfortunate, but, um, it, you know, I talked a lot about GPT-3 and, and so on. And um, one company I um, interviewed, Morgan Stanley, is trying to use um, these um, generative tools to kind of manage their ex- internal knowledge, not just the knowledge in the world at large um, that happened to be on the internet or whatever used to train the model, but their own internal knowledge. And through sort of fine tuning of the model, they could find, you know, what is the best recommendation for an investment in this particular situation, say. And I think organizations will be delinquent if they don't develop that kind of capability. It's sort of a new approach to knowledge management, which was one of my previous enthusiasms years ago. Yeah, we had a cool guest uh, two years ago now. Uh, In episode number 455, we had Horace Wu, who's the CEO of a legal AI startup called Cynthia, who was doing the kind of thing that you're describing. So you were already talking earlier in this episode about um, legal firms being able to search over documents. And so uh, what Horace's company, Cynthia, allows you to do is it allows you to generate clauses based on your internal database of existing clauses. So these big law firms have millions and millions and millions of documents. And so you can be ingesting those. And then you can say you could he has um, an add on for Microsoft Word so that you can highlight a clause and say, you know, I I'm looking for something like this, but this isn't exactly right. 
and then it'll search over. Uh, so it'll convert that language into a vector, and then it'll look for similar vectors in the existing uh, company database and return you uh, some suggestions of, of mm. ways you could be dapping the clause. You, you must, I must say you have an encyclopedic knowledge of your previous podcast. So. <laughs> uh, well, I have a spreadsheet. <laughs> uh, so I furiously, when I have ideas of how, how can I tie this to a previous episode, then I'm, I'm flipping over to my spreadsheet of past guests and searching their name quickly uh, to be able to cite. I don't, I don't, I haven't memorized all the old episode numbers. <laughs> well, before long, I think you'll have to, if you haven't done this already, you'll have to turn all your previous episodes into text and have that as a training database for um, chat GPT or whatever. And then you can, you don't need guests. You can just say, generate <laughs> me something on this combination of topics. Well, as it happens, Tom, we've already done all of the foundational human labor required to facilitate that AI capability because uh, every episode, certainly since I've been host of the show for over two years, uh, we have a transcript that has been meticulously cleaned by our podcast manager, Ivana. And so every episode, uh, people go to superdatascience.com slash podcast and they go to whatever episode they like. Uh, they can actually just read the entire episode instead of uh, listening to it or viewing it. Using um, otter.ai or something like that, or uh, we use transcribe it. No. Uh, we use augmented humans, so we use uh, oh, okay. instead of instead of a standalone uh, service like Otter. Uh, instead of we've we've decided to augment instead of automate. So we uh, we use a service that has humans that uh, that try to they, they must surely it'd be insane if they aren't as the first pass using a tool like Otter. And then yeah, they get it, yeah. they clean it up, they pass that to us. And then our podcast manager, Ivana, reads through the entire thing and fixes all of the, you know, the kinds of the proper nouns and things that the uh, the transcript creator doesn't know. Uh, so, yeah. And by the way, I found out the same approach is being used in translation um, for important uh, business documents and localization of marketing content and so on. It's not, you know, something like Google Translate wouldn't be able to handle it at all. It's computer-aided translation that kind of suggests something and then the human can say, no, nah, don't like that, got to change that and move along. It greatly improves their productivity, of course. For sure, exactly. Um, cool. So uh, yeah, very interesting uh, discussion so far and I'm not surprised to have had it um, on several of your books now. Uh, in addition to your books, you've also authored 250 groundbreaking articles for prominent uh, business publications like the Harvard Business Review, the MIT Sloan Management Review, the California Management Review, the Financial Times, and so on. It's countless. Um, so our listeners, some of them who are uh, hands-on data practitioners, they may not be particularly familiar with your writing in these, in these business publications. We probably have other listeners who very much are, you know, they're, they're uh, in senior management, and that is where they get a lot of their AI content. Um, but those technical data scientist people, um, they have almost certainly heard of your work through your iconic piece called Data Scientist, The Sexiest Job of the 21st Century, an article that is now almost 11 years old. Um, and you followed up in July of 2022 with uh, an article, Is Data Scientist Still the Sexiest Job? of the 21st century. So um, 
what's happened, Tom, over that intervening decade? Uh, how did the roles demand requirements and challenges change? Yeah, and I should say that both of those were co-authored with DJ Patil, and I made a good prediction in seeking a co-author. He became, um, uh, after we wrote that uh, first article, he became the first chief data scientist of the United States of America in the White House, so that, that worked out well. I've been busy in my spreadsheet over here. He's our guest on episode number 355. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try to mention somebody who has not um, been your guest. But, um, anyway, so um, one of the big changes, I think, is, uh, um, and we didn't really know enough yet about large-scale production of AI when we first um, wrote that article, to realize that data scientists were probably not well-suited to doing everything that was necessary uh, to create uh, an effective data product. Um, they're really good at, you know, fitting models to data and, uh, you know, tinkering with algorithms and feature engineering and all that sort of thing. But most data scientists, I think, are not really good at many of the other things you have to do if you're going to successfully deploy a model into production and manage it over time. Things like, you know, building the trust of senior executives to, to adopt the model for their business in the first place and retraining the people who do the day-to-day -day work and redesigning the business process and may, uh, integrating the model um, into your existing IT architecture and scaling it um, so that it can, you know, handle lots and lots of concurrent users and so on. So um, now I think we've realized we still need this model building capability um, for the most part. I mean, we also have this issue of automated machine learning, which can do, you know, the more mundane aspects of that. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But we have things like um, machine learning engineers and data engineers and machine learning operations people and translators and data product managers and so on, who we also need if we're going to be successful with um, deployment of successful data products. And so that means that, you know, data scientists can no longer pretend to be unicorns. If they did, they... Um, <laughs> Uh, they need to be members of a of a team that works together. I think that you know good data scientists need to worry about whether their models are getting deployed or not. If they aren't, I think they're not going to be successfully employed uh, for by a company anyway. But um, you know, oh. every everybody can have their specialties. Oh, I just gave you. I, I just had an idea for a great uh, article title. So we, you know, we have uh, in academia, we have of course publish or perish, yeah. and uh, so now you could have deploy or be unemployed. It's as, as, as close. <laughs> deploy to be employed. I don't know. There's something yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I didn't really realize this. I. Um, I wrote an article once, there's a relatively new journal coming out of Harvard, my um, graduate school alma mater, and you had um, Shaoli um, on yes, Shaoli one Mike. of your episodes. Yes. Yeah, he's the first editor and creator of this Harvard Data Science Journal, and I, I loved him. He was great. He was dean of the graduate school um, after I left, 
did wonders for their statistics department. But um, I wrote this, it's supposed to be an opinion piece, a column, but Shaoli believes in getting everything, you know, peer reviewed. So I wrote, you know, data scientists need to worry about deployment. And two out of the three of the peer reviewers said, no, they don't. <laughs> um, and I was shocked. You know, I thought that this was self-evident that, you know, um, deploy or be uh, unemployed. Um, and um, so I had to kind of water down the message somewhat in that article. And since then, I've focused a fair amount on on that issue because, you know, there's a lot of data suggesting that data science models, the majority don't get deployed at all mm-hmm. and they don't produce economic value as a mm-hmm. result. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a small fraction. It's like 10 or 20 percent. Of yeah, data I mean, it shouldn't be 100% yeah. obviously, but it should be higher than 13% or yeah. some one of the figures cited. Yeah, and so for those of you who really want the episode numbers, Shaoli Meng's episode number 581. <laughs> uh and uh yeah, that's actually Shaoli's episode is one of my favorites ever. It's uh, it's jam-packed with really interesting uh conversation. He's such a fun guy and he did, you know, he brought to the statistics courses at Harvard, he brought things like dating and wine and chocolate and so on, things that had never been discussed in a statistics mm-hmm. classroom before. There's a lot of those specific topics yeah. in the episode, yeah. actually. <laughs> um, and that bring this the, the point that you're making about data scientists potentially being worried about their um, their employment. Um, I, I think they should be concerned. I think uh, there is, or, or rather the way of phrasing it is that if you think that these skills, you know, creating, using scikit-learn to create a machine learning model, that in and of itself is not enough uh, in, the, in, in this field anymore. And so I constantly say on air, a very common question that I ask our guests is, you know, what do you look for in people that you hire? Or what roles do you have open? And uh, so, because we have quite a few guests who are like CEOs of fast-growing startups, you know, they've just raised $100 million. What kinds of roles are you hiring for? They are not always hiring data scientists. Sometimes they are. But typically, there's just a few positions. And they can typically find really great people to fill those roles. However, all of these people, without fail, evergreen job description out there for software developers, things like machine learning engineers, data engineers, these exact roles that you've described that are adjacent to data science, that are either building the plumbing, in the case of the data engineer, that is flowing uh, the data into the models for the data scientist, or the machine learning engineer that's bringing it into a production system. Um, Yeah, so I'm always, I frequently encouraging listeners to be picking up software developer skills where they can, even if they are uh, a, a quote unquote pure data scientist. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the job that it is increasingly going to kind of coordinate all of those different roles and make sure everybody's, you know, collaborating to create a good outcome is the data product manager. And that, um, you know, not terribly well recognized in a lot of businesses yet, but I think it will join prompt engineer in, in the future list of uh, fast growing jobs in in the world of, of data science yep agreed and um, 
yeah, having recently had somebody join my machine learning company, Nebula, Alice, uh, she came from France. Uh, Alice is how it's spelt <laughs> uh, to the Anglophones. Uh, and uh, her title isn't data product manager, but that is effectively, you know, she's product manager for um, a data product. <laughs> so she might as well have that job title. And it's been a game changer. Uh, she's been working with data scientists on our team a lot. And somebody in that role who's really good about thinking uh, about how users will interact with outputs from models or um, data distributions, any kind of data that's uh, being fed into or out of a model, it's been a game changer for us. And so I think that that is a, it's, it, I'm really, I, I, I think it's great that you're highlighting that particular role. It's not one that we've talked about on air before, to my knowledge. Yeah, well, um, there's a guy named Brian O'Neill who also has a podcast. Maybe you you can uh, appear on each other's podcast or something. But he's quite oriented to the sort of design and user interface aspects of data products. And then there are other ones too. I think the the whole idea of ML ops, which you've recently had a podcast on, I'm sure you'll come up with the number in a second. <laughs> it's too um, many. <laughs> yeah. But that's, you know, the ongoing management of models is something that data product managers have to be worried about too. Are people, are customers using it? Uh, has the world changed? So the model needs to be retrained. Um, uh, the machine can tell you some of these things, but it still requires some human oversight and product managers are still, you know, perform their jobs in other areas after products are released into the into the world. And I think they need to here too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we have, so for <laughs> people who want uh, an ML ops episode, uh, uh, my apologies to all of the other ML ops guests that we've had on uh, recently, but two big ones, uh, episode 595 were Joe Reese and Matt Housley. They recently wrote a very popular O'Reilly book on ML ops. And then Mikiko Baisley in episode 599 is a great one as well. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, all right. So very cool. Um, we've talked now about how data science has changed over the last 10 years. Do you have any insight into how the role may change over the coming 10 years? Yeah, well, you know, I'm a big fan of democratization of these tools. And, you know, you mm -hmm. see it in other areas with low code and no code. Um, you see it in the area of kind of automation with uh, users taking over sort of citizen automation, if you will. So I, I am a believer. I know there aren't too many people in the data science uh, among data science professionals who are big believers in this, but the citizen data science movement, I think is going to be very important. And so that means professional data scientists will evolve into only doing the really um, uh, hardcore new algorithm development work and checking the efforts of the citizens. Um, and you know, that, that will be, I think, a major change for them. But, you know, if, if you believe data science is important, um, we can't restrict its use to a relatively small number of highly trained uh, PhD types, um, uh, no offense to to you, a PhD data scientist. <laughs> uh, um, they we have to engage other other people in this. There's just too much important work to be done. There's too much data out there, and most of, let's face it, most of the work is being done um, 
that's being done in data science is not breakthrough algorithm development work. It's pretty mundane stuff. Um, and also a, another change I think we'll see is it's widely stated. Um, I don't know if you have a podcast about this or not, that 80% of data science work is um, munging around with data. Um, and a lot of that's going to be done by AI and an increasingly is now for things like data integration um, across integrating data across separate databases that turns out to be the same people or the same products or or whatever through probabilistic matching technology and so that will i think when that's done by ai that will free up the data scientists to the ones that are really great with with um algorithm work um, can do that and the others can kind of supervise the citizens and train them and make sure they're effective and help them pick out the right tools and so on. And, you know, we haven't done an episode on automated data munging. And I, I like that. That's a good topic idea. Um, and I think that this ties in nicely to the conversation we had a long time ago now in this episode about radiologists, where, you know, you were saying one in 13 things that a radiologist does in their day is now being automated to some extent. And these kinds of tools like AutoML, which you already mentioned, and uh, <laughs> I should have already brought up an episode number for that. I'll, I'll have it in a second. Um, but uh, AutoML tools, while we might think of a data scientist, their job fundamentally being creating models, deciding what the best model is, it, I don't know if it's one in 13, uh, you know, one thirteenth of their day, but it isn't actually the majority of their day, even though it is the most prominent thing that we think of as we define the data scientist role. Um, Maybe the thing they like the most. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think data munging could be where a data scientist today spends a huge amount of their time. And so, uh, but I think it'll be great to have that more and more of that automated too, because people hate that part of it anyway. Um, so then data science, data scientists can be adding a huge amount of value. As you said, kind of supervising citizen data scientists, that's a great idea. But then also just communicating what these things mean and interpreting them and uh, thinking of commercial applications. Yeah, yeah. So I've mentioned um, uh, I, in that book, Working with AI, I did one chapter on um, 84.51 degrees. I don't know if you've come across them. They're the captive data science subsidiary of Kroger based mm. in Cincinnati. And that's the longitude of Cincinnati. <laughs> they say we work with longitudinal <laughs> data, so we chose 84.51. Um, but they have done a great job, I think, of adopting AutoML, uh, engaging a new class of people to do um, model work that they call insight specialists and having the data scientists sort of supervise and, and train them. Cool. Um, that's a really great specific example. It's great that through all the case studies you've done, you have all these specific examples that you can reel off. I love that. Um, nice. So uh, another thing that you've been able to uh, come up with as a result of uh, all these case studies that you've done over the years is you've come up with um, an idea of different eras for analytics. So uh, you have analytics 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. So what is the difference between these levels? And I mistakenly, um, I, I kind of 
I blended together two different concepts of yours that we were talking about before we started recording. And so I was what you call eras, these analytics 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, I was calling them maturity levels. And I think that's something separate that you have. So maybe you could fill us in on the eras and the maturity levels and maybe how they're related. Yeah. So I wrote an article called analytics 3.0, since then, I've added another era, but uh, 1.0 was the sort of, I call it artisanal analytics. It was the era of sort of decision support and um, not a lot of um, not a lot of prediction, mostly descriptive analytics. Um, this is, you know, what I, what I grew up on, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe some regression analysis for prediction. And then 2.0 was sort of the big data era where companies, uh, particularly digital native companies, had this vast amount of new data. This is when data science was born as a profession. Um, uh, The advent of working on data products as opposed to internal support of um, executive decision makers uh, came along at this time. And then around 2013, 2012 or so, I started seeing big companies say, oh, we want to do that too. Um, and I call that data economy analytics where sort of everybody can get in on big data plus small data um, decision support, but more industrialized and you know involving large scale decisions and also big companies developing data products too. And then they, uh, that, that was sort of the beginning, I think, of, of widespread use of machine learning. But uh, analytics 4.0, if you will, is the AI era, of course. And um, we've talked about that a lot. I don't need to go into detail about it. The um, maturity models I did for analytics, I, I kind of dabbled in the latest book, All In on AI, with a maturity model for AI, but um, I didn't have a lot of data. But I did, I have had it for um, analytics. And so, one, level one, you know, you're not doing much of anything. Level two is very siloed and organization doesn't recognize analytics as a, as a, a, important business resource. 3.0 is where executives start to have a glimmer that, hey, this might be important to us, and they start to invest and build up, but it's still early days. Um, In 4.0, you're really good. I should just say level four, not 4.0. Level four, you're good at analytics, but you're not obsessed by it. You don't really think of it as a competitive Weapon. So I, a number of banks, obviously banks have to make good decisions about whether to extend credit or not. And, and I, a lot of them were level four. And level five is these analytical competitors where you're, you're, you think that it's the key to your success um, of your strategy. You build um, all sorts of capabilities around it. So Capital One was one of my favorite examples in that mm-hmm. category, progressive insurance. Caesars, which has now fallen back to, I think, probably level three. Now Caesars, the, like the the casino, casino. company or the pizza yeah. company? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's company. Little Caesars. <laughs> the, the little Caesars has gotten better. A friend of mine is the chief <laughs> analytics officer, and they've started to use a lot more stuff in, in, in analytics and AI. But Caesars was headed by a PhD economist from MIT, a friend of mine named Gary Loveman, and he brought all sorts of analytical discipline. 
But he laughed and they sort of evolved back to the past, uh, sadly. So, you know, I think it's hard for companies to kind of embed this so deeply that they don't go back when a when a leader, when a charismatic leader who believes in data and analytics and AI ends up leaving. But I, maybe Capital One will be that way. They're still run by the founder, but I think it's pretty deep in that company now. Mm-hmm. Um, is lagging behind in a lower maturity level a death sentence for an organization relative to their competitors? Uh, I think over time it probably is. Um, you know, we've seen this in other generations of technology where, um, you know, we had a lot of, of small retailers and they all pretty much um, fell by the wayside when Walmart came along and did, you know, these great supply chain systems and built a big satellite network for moving data around and so on. Um, and uh, we've certainly seen that Amazon, with the use of those technologies and a huge amount of analytics and AI, has put a lot of uh, small retailers out of business. So, yeah, I think that it, can, you know, if it's a data intensive um, industry or it can be a data intensive industry, I think ultimately that's going to win out. And, you know, it's hard in some of these areas to be a fast follower just because with AI, you know, you, takes you have to accumulate a lot of data and a lot of skills and so on it's hard to do that overnight so mm-hmm. i think it's very dangerous to say yeah you know we're, we're not quite ready yet we're gonna wait and see what happens mm-hmm. so how can organizations level up as quickly as possible do you have frameworks for that i do uh in that analytics work i called it the delta model um now there's a delta plus and so on a company that i co-founded called the International Institute for Analytics has developed all these assessment um, tools uh, and models. But uh, Delta was D for data, E for enterprise orientation, L for leadership, T for targets, which was, you know, where you really focus your efforts, and A for analysts or data scientists, if you will now. Um, But I think technology has come to play a much bigger role than it did in the early days of analytics, where all everybody needed was a Teradata data warehouse and SAS or SPSS or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, technology is a big factor. The methods that you're using are a big factor. Um, uh, and uh, I don't know, obviously, analysts have become data scientists. But I think um, that whole cadre of, of people that we were talking about earlier, the machine learning engineers, data engineers, have to be factored in, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Yeah. Delta plus. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So recently in the episode, I had you gazing into your crystal ball um, as to uh, how data science might change in the coming decades. Uh, Well, so you've been a distinguished professor at Babson College for nearly 20 years, and you teach artificial intelligence for business there. Uh, In that course, students have to study material about how AI works. So um, do you think that future business leaders, uh, not just data scientists, have to be more well-versed about technology and AI in particular than they've had to in the past? Yeah, no no doubt about it. And I think, um, as I was saying earlier, I think you, you need to understand this stuff pretty well if you're going to make big strategic decisions about it. And not very many senior leaders do. So... Um, 
I, I think it's almost uh, organizational malpractice not to engage senior leaders in, in what this stuff is all about. It's the most powerful kind of general purpose business tool we have these days. It's like electricity almost. And uh, I, I do this some myself. I was just involved in a, a program, executive program at MIT for the U.S. Um, military. Obviously, they're going to be spending a lot of money on AI, and they need to understand a lot of different aspects of it. Um, we haven't really talked about the ethical aspects of this. Clearly, that's important on, on the military side, but I think it's important for every company. Um, so, um, yeah, you absolutely need to train senior leaders in this sort of stuff. Cool. And yeah, so we've had, we earlier in the episode, we talked about the kinds of technical roles that uh, have evolved or are evolving as a result of AI. So things like data engineers, machine learning engineers have already uh, become really, really important in the future. Data product managers, maybe things like prompt engineers will become more and more important. And so what about in the kind of executive leadership, how uh, will AI transform the kinds of specialized C-suite roles uh, that are around? Yeah, well, in 1992, I think, when the first chief data officer was named at Capital One, um, now many of those chief data officers, I think, um, quite fortuitously have evolved into chief data and analytics and AI officers. Um, usually they don't add the AI, it's just CDAO. Um, and that's good because it's hard to show value just from data management alone. It's analytics and AI that really provide the visible value. So um, uh, I've written that those people have had low tenures in their jobs. Fortunately, there's a lot of demand for them so they can find other ones. But um, with analytics and AI included in the role, I think it'll make it much longer lasting. And those tend to be sort of business oriented. In many cases, they report even to CEOs. It's kind of surprising to me, but I've just done a survey with AWS and um, I do some other surveys showing a fair number of them report to CEOs, some report to chief operations officers, not very many anymore reporting to chief information officers who are kind of left to think about infrastructure stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, and they define their, their success in business terms, not so much technical terms. And many of them have business backgrounds. So um, I, um, I think it's a very important role and you're seeing pretty, widespread growth of it, although there's still, I think, a lack of understanding in many companies about what it's supposed to do. Cool. Yeah, that's a great insight there. So uh, while chief data officers have short tenures, why do you have insight into that? Why do chief data officers have short tenures? But just because it's hard to show value if you're just doing data management. Um, mm. It's kind of an abstraction to most executives, most peer executives. Um, it's hard to show rapid improvement. Uh, it's just um, data data governance. Nobody wants to be governed anyway. Um, it's just a tough job unless you add analytics and AI to it. That makes it a lot more appealing. As somebody, one of those people said to me, CDO without analytics, that's a two-year job. Uh, <laughs> and people figure out, you know, whatever crisis you were brought in to solve is more or less fixed. So we don't need you anymore. <laughs> right. Right. Cool. Well, yeah. So chief analytics or chief AI officers, uh, 
we'll see more of them in the future. And yeah, maybe they'll have more job stability. Cool to hear that they report uh, directly into CEOs. Um, yeah. And unsurprising to hear that they're focused on uh, commercial success as opposed to technical um, success. So, all right. So we've had you uh, projecting into the future a lot now recently in the episode. Um, let's now look deep into your past. So your undergraduate and graduate degrees are in sociology, but you've been writing articles about business and analytics for nearly four decades. So what career events got you involved at the intersection of business and analytics? I, as a, I think I was still an undergraduate and I, um, got hired by a medical sociologist to do some computer analysis of some data that she had. And so then when I got to graduate school, there was a job um, in the computing center for social sciences to help people do their statistical analysis work. And so I did that for four years or so. And then I worked for a consulting firm as their data analyst. And sort of over time, I got less and less interested in sociology and more and more interested in computer stuff. And so now I guess you could say I'm a sociologist of business information and technology, but um, I don't think that's a recognized field in the sociology profession. But um, yeah, that's kind of how I got there. And uh, I have kind of bounced back and forth between consulting firms that focus on information technology and then business schools I've been at mostly for the last 20 years or so. Cool. Yeah. Uh, was there anything in particular, um, you know, was it just, was it that opportunity coming up or was there something about that opportunity, that initial opportunity uh, that appealed, like something about analytics that you were curious about? Um, I, I, um, I don't know. I taught statistics, um, uh, to some degree and I always right. found it hard to teach. Um, I wasn't like Xiaoli Ming. I wasn't creative enough to come up with all those cool, um, uh, examples. And so, but I really thought it was amazing how computers could chew through data and, um, I, I really enjoyed sitting down with with my kind of customers and saying, okay, what are you trying to prove? Let's, let's see what model might work for it. In those days, it was sort of regression analysis or analysis of variance or cross tabs. We didn't have any, mm -hmm. there were no random forests to be discussed mm -hmm. at that point. But um, I, I found it really um, fun to, it's like puzzle solving, I guess, for, for those people. Nice. All right. Well, we've gotten through all of my questions. And as I mentioned at the onset of the show, we had a lot of audience engagement. Um, and so let's dig up some of the, uh, the most popular questions that came up uh, on the social media feeds. Cool. So first one here is from Mike Nash. So Mike had a number of questions for you, but we've actually addressed most of them already. Do we just happen to in the conversation that we were covering? Um, but one that we haven't talked about at all is that it's possible here that in 2023, with interest rates going up around the world, uh, we might be entering choppy economic times. Do you think, Tom, that this will impact the growth of AI for the better or for the worse? 
Uh, I th- well, you know, I think it's a great question. I think we're beyond the AI winter stage. There's just so much going on in the AI area that I don't th- I don't see a major retreat. Mm-hmm. But I do think that a number of companies will sort of re-examine their activities and and make sure they're yielding value. So it's even more important to get that productivity, I mean, that deployment and productivity and economic value um, that we were discussing earlier. Um, but I, I don't see, a, you know, maybe fewer startups um, because there won't be as much venture capital money around. But uh, in the latter days of 2022, we obviously saw a lot of really exciting things happen with uh, the generative AI, and um, you know that's sort of just beginning. Uh, yep, I couldn't agree more. I, I don't think that uh, a recession is going to hold back uh, the flood of AI applications that are becoming uh, more and more widely available. Um, Another question here comes from Nigel Thompson. He's a uh, strategy consultant, and uh, he has again has a number of questions for you. I don't know if I've ever had so many people come up with so many different. So usually, people just have one or two, but Nigel again, he has four questions. They're all pretty big. M- many of them we already kind of covered a little bit in discussion that we've uh, already had in the episode. So I'll skip right to his fourth one, which is. Um, would you, Tom, use intelligent wearables if you had no idea how the data were being used at the back end? Um, so I guess this is this kind of question about uh, so maybe things like, um, you know, your 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 heart data or other health data or private data that you might have that you're sharing about yourself. Do you have concerns, uh, you know, personally? when you're not sure how those data are being used on uh, the servers of the company that's taking those data? Yeah, well, I guess I do because, you know, I have my trusty iPhone and my Apple Watch and so on. And I I certainly don't know how all the data from the apps and so on is being used. You know, I have minor concerns about it. Um, Yeah, I think it was... um, uh, the CEO or chairman of Google, um, Mr. Schmidt, at one point that said, you know, if you don't want um, people finding out bad things in your data, don't do anything bad. <laughs> so I, I don't think I do anything bad enough to worry about it. And two, I think uh, I've been hearing for decades about how um, surveillance capitalism, to use Shoshana Zuboff's term, was going to ruin all of our lives. And uh, frankly, I rarely ever get any sort of personalized offer that knows enough about me to for me to be impressed <laughs> at all. I Once I got an offer, I think it's a Groupon, for a restaurant that I really wanted to go to, it's almost like a tear came to my eye. It was such a rare event. I couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> a personalized offer that I really want. So, um, uh, I, I guess I I think some of these concerns are a little overblown, but um, uh, in the future, I think you know we we should all be concerned about it. Uh, my friend John Thompson is writing a book about data now, where he sort of says we're all going to be um, damned and in hell if we don't start paying more attention to what happens to our data. So I mm-hmm. probably grudgingly agree. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'm I'm slight I'm in the same camp as you in that I'm somewhat suspicious about where my data goes. And so I feel like of the options available to me with my operating system choices and my phone choices, I end up going with Apple. Who, you know, that's become their big thing. Yeah. I I went with them before it was their big thing. But you know, I think you always have to think about, well, what am I getting in exchange for it? So I one of the email clients I use is Gmail and Gmail, you know, even when they were, I think they said they don't share the content of messages anymore. They did at one point. I'm not saying anything interesting enough to worry about. So if I were committing crimes or whatever, then I would um, probably be using Signal or, you know, something highly encrypted, but I'm not worried. Um, So you're going to love, I'm going to reel off so many episode numbers right now because we had a lot of uh, some of our biggest past guests on the show. Uh, when they found out that you were going to be on, uh, they they wrote comments. So uh, Sadie St. Lawrence, who has been on the show a number of times uh, in recent years, most recently in episode 641, it was the first episode of the year. We did a data science trends prediction for 2023. And she said that uh, your book Competing on Analytics was the first book that she ever read analytics, uh, the first book that she ever read on analytics. Uh, and She's now, you know, she's become this uh, huge AI uh, analytics and strategy leader. Um, so I think you've really inspired somebody there. Uh, similarly, Ben Taylor, he's been on uh, probably 10 or 12 episodes over the years. Uh, he wow. might have the record as our, our uh, most frequently occurring guest. He said that he loves your content. Um, and Anne K. Emery, who was on recently, in episode number 637, uh, we already covered her question, which was, does Tom still think that data science is the sexiest job? Um, so we got that one down for you, Anne. Um, and then finally, Christina Stathopoulos. Um, so she was in episode number 603. And Christina is popular on social media for running a book club. And many of these books are data books. And so uh, she has already queued up the question that I always ask our guests at the end of the show anyway, which is, uh, so she says, I know Tom has written books and I'm familiar with them, but what books does he recommend others read other than his own books? I would love to hear the data and non-data related recommendations he has. Uh, Yeah, so the data ones, um, uh, I like that book, The Master Algorithm, a while yeah. ago. Um, yeah. uh, I, um, in terms of kind of actual use of data in business, um, I like this book um, called The Man Who Solved the Market. I have it on my bookshelf about um, that Jim Simons, the Renaissance Technologies hedge fund guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I... I sort of find that you can either write a lot of books or read a lot of books. Um, <laughs> I tend to write them more than I read them. I, I look, you know, I look at books as I need to learn more about them, but I really like fiction more than I like um, nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And so I read a really nice book a couple of weeks ago called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow about um, a bunch of gamers um, and really interesting about sort of male-female friendships, not romance. And um, I'm reading now this 
pretty interesting book by Robert Harris. It's a historical fiction book uh, called Act of Oblivion about the people who, I, get, I think this is largely true, the people who chased the killers of King Charles I, um, the sort of Puritans across New, around New England. Um, and one of my um, sort of ancestors, John Davenport, the founder of New Haven Colony, is in it. So I found it quite interesting for that reason. But I didn't know that much about the Puritan era and Oliver Cromwell and so on. So it tells you a lot about a lot about that in a fairly painless way. Nice. Yeah, I love fiction for um, bringing you into some historical uh, context, and so you can learn about history in a really uh, undry way. I don't think the word we use there is wet. <laughs> yeah, painless, maybe. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, um, great. Well, I'm sure Christina and lots of our listeners will appreciate those great uh, data and non-data book recommendations. All right. And then the final question that we always have is how should people follow your work after this episode? Uh, it's sort of all the, all the usual channels. I have a webpage, tomdavenport.com. Um, uh, I put almost everything I write in some form on LinkedIn. So you can connect with me or follow me either one. I don't, I think I still can accept a few, um, uh, connections and i write for forbes and harvard business review and mit Sloan management review primarily um so uh, if you like those kinds of places i appear fairly often there nice well thanks a lot tom i really enjoyed this episode it's been great uh i hope our audience members have as well i feel very confident they have frankly this has been brilliant thank you so much for coming on the show and yeah, maybe in a few years, we can catch up with you again. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the great questions. My goodness, what an honor to have a world-class speaker and AI communicator like Professor Davenport on the show. I relished every second of that fabulously engaging experience. I hope you loved the episode too. In it, Tom filled us in on how organizations become AI-fueled by having senior decision-makers that know a lot about AI and confidence in where the requisite consumer technology is going, how machines are generally more effective at augmenting humans in the workplace than replacing them, but that jobs with lots of repetition are susceptible to automation with those with lots of change or innovation are ideal for augmentation with AI. He also talked about how roles like ML engineer, data engineer, and data product manager are essential to effectively deploying the models that data scientists develop, and how the future of data science will be characterized by democratization via low-code, no-code tools, AutoML streamlining model development, and data munging happening in an increasingly automated fashion. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Professor Davenport's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 647. That's superdatascience.com slash 647. If you too would like to ask questions of future guests of the show, like several audience members did during today's episode, then consider following me on LinkedIn or Twitter as that's where I post who upcoming guests are and ask you to provide your inquiries for them. Another way we can interact is coming up on March 1st, I'll be hosting a virtual conference on natural language processing with large language models like BERT and the GPT series architectures. 
It'll be interactive, practical, and it'll feature some of the most influential scientists and instructors in the large natural language model space as speakers. It'll be live in the O'Reilly platform, which many employers and universities provide access to. Otherwise, you can grab a free 30-day trial of O'Reilly using our special code SDSPOD23. We've got a link to that code ready for you in the show notes. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another terrific episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors, whom I've hand-selected as partners because I expect their products to be genuinely of interest to you. Please consider supporting this free show by checking out our sponsors' links, which you can find in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com slash podcast. Last but not least, thanks to you for listening. We wouldn't be here at all without you. So until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there. And I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.